Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Karima Saad. Now let's give you guys a little bit of a background or how I met Karima. So as you know, Justin Trudeau, you know, he has been, I, I'm actually very thankful to Justin Trudeau and his gaffes because uh, in the recent India-Canada kerfuffle, a lot of Canadians and Indians have started meeting on Twitter spaces. So in one of these Twitter spaces is where I came across Karima and she discussed this very interesting topic uh, of uh, what is the title of today's podcast, which is hashtag hategate. And I was like, damn, I need to know more about this. And then uh, I message Karima on the Twitter DM and uh, she was nice enough to agree to come on the podcast. So Karima, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So Karima, this is your first time on the podcast. So for the benefit of my viewers and listeners, because this is going to go on the audio version too, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so my name is Karima. I am a lawyer and journalist based in Toronto, Canada. Um, I focus in my law practice mostly on housing, cannabis, and criminal law issues. And the journalism came about initially as a passion project and something that I've leaned more into as time went on. But it started with the pandemic and protests that were happening across Canada. And I wanted to know more about why people were taking to the streets, what issues they had, how those were being articulated, what was motivating. And that's been quite the journey. Um, so I spent time documenting the Freedom Convoy that took place in, uh, I guess, January, February of 2022. Um, and that resulted in the Emergencies Act being invoked for the first time in Canadian history. And, and that's because apart from the streets in Ottawa being taken over by large trucks and the protesters surrounding that, um, there were border blockades, um, there was a, allegedly a weapons cache retrieved at one of these. Um, and so a lot of dissent and turmoil in the nation. Uh, and that kind of journey has carried on as protests continue, the subjects change a little bit, um, you know, and gender ideology has been a huge point of contention lately. And, you know, I, I'm interested in what I've now termed Canada's hate industrial complex, because there's a lot of money that goes into the amorphous abstract notion of hate, which itself is used to justify suppression of speech um, or shutting down events. And I think that it's not a particularly academic or legally based approach. Um, so my personal positionality throughout this has evolved, changed, but I've, I've always been an observer um, and at times drawn into it as sort of a, a character in an almost a gonzo style journalism, because despite being a huge landmass, Canada is ultimately a fairly small country. So you keep coming across the same individuals, the same politicians, 
Um, and, and that's what brings me here today. So, so I like this word that you've used, the hate industrial complex, because uh, now I've been, I've, the, the first time I came in my life to this country, Canada, um, was in the year 2001 when I was studying in York University. Um, and and I, I clearly remember that, uh, look, I mean, I've traveled around the world. I don't know how to say this, but I'm going to say this in the most non-targeted way towards white people as possible. I mean, I'm not trying to say this in a racist way. I'm trying to say this in a positive way. Like I've come across a lot of white people in my life. I've been to UK. I've been to America. I've been to Western Europe. I have a lot of white friends. But there is something unique about the Canadian white folks. They have taken in the burden of all white folks on this planet. And, and they have taken that burden and they have charged themselves with on a steroids version of it of some sort. And they, and, and I used to always find them to be so guilt-ridden about everything. I'm like, well, why are you bothered about something that happened in America or the United Kingdom? And, and you know, this hate industrial complex that you're talking about is a lot of it comes from that white guilt in Canada. And, and, and it's, 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 to me, at times, I used to find it condescending as a brown man. To be very honest, I used to find it extremely condescending. And I hope you can understand where I'm coming from because everything is not about you guys. I mean, I'm just, you know, I just want to put it out there. Everything is not about whether it's guilt or whether it's racism. You can't be equally good or equally bad at the same time. And it used to bother me a lot. And I, I would just shut up because... A, I was a student. I did not understand it that then, but I used to observe these patterns. And over the years, I have seen this really grow as, uh, you know, American soft power is real. And because America has changed and victimhood uh, epistemology is now the essence of America. And whatever happens in America, Canada does the steroids version of that. I, this has been my outsider observation as an Indian who looks at both America and, and Canada. So, so do you think America has a role in playing, uh, playing a role on the Canadian psyche in the eight industrial complex? I think that's probably fair to say to some degree. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I would almost think that we're a watered down version as opposed to on steroids, but I'm here in the center of it. So it's hard to tell. Um, from the eye of the hurricane. Um, the way that race is dealt with in Canada, um, and I think this has to do with sort of a, a cultural wanting to be perceived as nice, wanting to be perceived as the good guys. Um, yes. and, and that doesn't necessarily mean being nice or being a good guy. It's more about the appearance, right? Um, and, and that's been my observation as a very visible minority who gets targeted quite frequently by white people who are ostensibly progressive, um, but will marshal all of their energy and animosity toward me for saying things they don't like or that make them feel uncomfortable rather than tackling systemic issues. Um, so there's a very shallow analysis, I would say, um, where people get caught up in the trappings or the window dressing um, and an unwillingness to engage with the rot underneath, quite frankly. Um, now, the hate industrial complex in Canada um, in its most recent form and iteration 
um, has direct ties to what's happening in the United States. Um, for example, the Southern Poverty Law Center provided seed money, $25,000, to the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, which is our the closest thing we have to a Northern equivalent. Um, so there are connections between what's happening south of the border and here, um, but you know, we, we being Canadians, um, uniquely make it our own um, in sort of this sugary sweet kind of way that uh, is, is quite artificial. Yeah, I, I, actually, you couldn't have explained it in a better way, the Canadian way. This is just every, it is such a passive aggressive way of doing things uh, in Canada. In America, you know, when you face hostility in America, it's very in your face. Like I've lived in both the countries. If an American is hostile to you, they're just hostile to you. They'll just say it to your face. But in Canada, it's like, you know, they'll butter you up like a slice of bread and they keep on putting that butter. And then they'll say, you know, it's almost as if in a nice way, you're such a jackass. It's, it's even more <laughs> irritating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I get uh, flack sometimes because um, sometimes like the way that I approach documenting protests and rallies on the ground, um, you know, there, I am a little bit in your face um, and that it makes people bristle at times and it feels foreign, uh, but actually it's just an attempt to be direct. And that directness, um, it, it doesn't always jive well with how Canadians want to present themselves or be perceived. Yeah, the, the the most condescending comment I personally heard from a random Canadian once in 2002 was, you're too aggressive for an Indian. I did not know how to take it then. And and I, I remember it to this day. The, so the image of Indians was supposed to be, you know, docile, Mahatma Gandhi. I am the, you know, apostle of nonviolence. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't do anything. And York University had a huge Gandhi statue. Apparently, every Indian is supposed to go and pray to Gandhi every day. I guess, uh, I don't know if they still have the Gandhi statue in York University. When I used to study, it used to have a giant Gandhi statue. In York I know University. that there's one at Carleton University. So maybe this is uh, across university campuses in Canada. I don't I didn't know about the York one. Um, I'll look into that. <laughs> yeah. So, so now, now for the benefit of Indians, uh, because a good 70% of this podcast, like I do have a huge Canadian listener base, which is very unlike Indian podcasters. I don't know why I do, but apparently I built a listener base in Canada and America. I, I like, I, I'm one of those unique Indian podcasters who has like 30 to 35% of his listener base is outside India, which is very weird. I, I've never figured it out why it is the case with me, but for my Indian listeners, especially, I want you now to explain hashtag hategate in a detailed manner, not in a curtailed manner. Okay, okay, I will do my best um, to make it make sense for those who aren't uh, finger on the pulse of Canadian politics. Um, so earlier, I referenced the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa that took place early 2022. And that was an event of national significance because basically our capital was shut down, um, border crossings uh, from coast to coast were affected. Um, there was this widespread dissent in the streets. And, you know, on a prima facie level, it was about mandates and 
the introduction of vaccine mandates for truckers. Um, and I think that there are some people who genuinely, that was their primary purpose for being there. But um, it, it had the appearance, at least, of a grassroots movement where lots of different grievances um, motivated people to be out there. Um, so some relating to mandates more generally, their own employment, unrelated to the trucking industry being affected, um, you know, the impact on their family lives, the impact of lockdowns. Uh, and there was also a very strong anti-Trudeau sentiment um, across the board. And I would say that that, above anything else, um, was what unified protesters, the disdain for Justin Trudeau. Um, and the way that this unfolded, um, particularly in Ottawa, I was there from day one. Uh, it was interesting because police initially welcomed the trucks. They told people where to park. Uh, it was jovial. It was amicable. It was friendly. Um, police relations for at least the first couple of weeks um, seemed largely supportive almost of this protest. Um, and there are dynamics to unpack there as far as what was happening within the Ottawa Police Service and a chief who did not have the support of his officers. Um, but in any event, at a certain point, the federal government said enough is enough. Um, you know, we need to deal with this. And they took a fairly heavy handed approach, um, which was to invoke the Emergencies Act. And this was the first time the legislation was used in Canadian history. Um, it, it basically, it's not quite martial law, but uh, it gave additional powers to the federal government um, that otherwise wouldn't have been available. Uh, an interesting little tidbit is that the predecessor legislation, the War Measures Act, um, was most recently invoked by Justin Trudeau's father in the 1970s. Um, so just kind of a unrelated, but um, a fun a fun trivia fact, I think. Uh, and and so the the basis for the Emergencies Act, um, there was a commission after the fact, which is mandatory in the legislation, um, and uh, different perspectives, viewpoints, a lot of testimony provided. Um, ultimately, it was found that the invocation of the act was justified. Now, Hategate is about what happened and what led to the Emergencies Act in a very, very narrow sense. Um, so there is a man named Jeremy McKenzie, uh, who is a Canadian podcaster, um, a combat war veteran, um, kind of a loudmouth, uh, definitely not appealing to everyone, um, and a bit subversive in some of his podcasting. Uh, and others would say offensive, racist, so on and so forth. Um, but he's someone who did not, let's say, um, hold the government in high regard. And his views were aligned with what the Freedom Convoy came to represent. Um, and Jeremy McKenzie was, I, I would say, not 
the main or a determinative reason for the Emergencies Act being invoked. That would be uh, an overstatement of his importance. Um, but he does have a podcast fan base, um, which he refers to as Diagolon. And Diagolon, in Canadian media and then law enforcement reports and statements from government officials, was portrayed as being a right-wing extremist accelerationist militia. Um, so an actual militia as opposed to people who tune in, listen, may agree with his views, um, but aren't actually organized in any meaningful sense to try and take over the country or create their own country. The, the notion of Diagolon itself uh, is, it, it came about because geographically from Alaska down to Florida, there's a diagonal line of states and provinces whose uh, approach to COVID-19 public health measures um, differed from anyone on either side of it. So they were generally resistant to lockdowns, mandates, so on and so forth. And, you know, that was jokingly um, taken to be, well, these guys should be their own country and everyone else can be around it. Um, but it was at all material times quite evidently a joke. Um, the the project Hategate um, it stems from a freedom of information request that was made, uh, looking for what the RCMP knew about Diagolon in the year where the the freedom convoy happened, leading up to it, and after the fact, and. The, the reason that we sort of put it together, I co-authored this document with a woman named Elisa Hadigan. We went through over a thousand pages of these freedom of information documents and were able to conclude that actually the RCMP, our Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they knew that it wasn't really an extremist group. Um, they knew that it wasn't really a militia, um, despite sort of what was being portrayed publicly. Um, and at the time that the Emergencies Act was invoked, you can imagine there was quite a frenzy, um, a frenzy within the population, uh, among lawmakers, senators, um, and the boogeyman of Diagolon kept coming up as a reason, as an existential threat that needs to be addressed. Um, and it just simply wasn't there there was nothing underlying that um based in in reality um and you know i i can only imagine and this is going to be the subject of another freedom of information request um you know what resources were spent on studying monitoring keeping tabs on this podcast fan base and you know the impact that it had on some of the individuals who, and particularly Jeremy McKenzie, um, who were the face of it without really, you know, being the leader of an organization per se. Um, and, you know, the, I would say the most, the, the key point to take away from all of this is that the reason Jeremy McKenzie and Diagolon were initially characterized as a militia has to do with the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. So this is a non-governmental organization with 
you know, ties to the federal government. Um, and they steadily for many, many months um, portrayed Jeremy McKenzie and Diagolon as a far right dangerous threat. Their assessment was repeated by media outlets treating them as the sole expert source. Then law enforcement relied on media outlets to shore up their own research. Government officials then relied on these law enforcement reports that are citing media, that are citing the anti-hate network, but there's no triangulation of data. There's not nothing, no real investigation. Um, and despite Jeremy McKenzie repeatedly offering to speak with law enforcement, that never happened. Um, so it's this feedback loop, um, this copy-paste journalism, copy-paste police investigations that, you know, created a false perception that really ingrained itself in Canada's public consciousness at the expense of an individual citizen whose only crime maybe was being distasteful online. And, you know, that, that it, it goes to the heart of expression and the way that the government deals with dissent um, and it, it ties into this hate industrial complex because the primary smear that was used is these people are hateful, they're racist, they're bigots, so on and so forth. And that in itself was enough almost to elevate it even past the threshold of criminality despite there never being charges for sedition or terrorism or criminal conspiracy or anything you might expect to see if there was an actual threat to national security. Um, so in my view, the real threat to national security uh, is this lazy, complacent approach um, that we see across institutions, uh, media, government, law enforcement, that allowed this to take root. No, this is very relatable. And uh, you might be like, that's such a terrible thing to relate to. But it is actually Indians and Canadians have a lot of things they can relate to. One of the things is the authoritarian impulse inside our political systems, whether it's Canada or in India. I, I have noticed this uh, authoritarian impulse. So let me narrate a story for you from India's uh, political past. And believe me, this was a blot on Indian society that uh, every Indian, you know, especially I, I, I want to narrate this because a lot of like 30% of this podcast is kids under the age of 25. Uh, kids, I am 42. So, I mean, I'm too old now. So, th there you go, people. But, you know, in on June 25th, there was something that had happened, which was called the emergency. It was in 1975, where the then Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi, had invoked Articles 352 and 356 of the Indian Constitution. Now, for people who want to talk about uh, Article 352, it is basically, and I'm reading the article verbatim, it is an emergency due to war, external aggression, or armed rebellion. This is known as a national emergency. 
and article uh, 356 is basically emergency due to the failure of the constitutional machinery in the states this is article this is more like a precedence rule in india these are two um, uh, articles that are that are used consistently in in the emergency story and it all starts with the then prime minister indira gandhi losing an election challenging it in the court and then the court verdict came on uh, june 12th uh, this is the famous alabad high court alabad is a par- is a city in in a province in northern india called uttar pradesh and uh, they basically the the verdict was against uh, indira gandhi and in favor of uh, the person uh, who who defeated her and then to deal with this situation indira gandhi imposed the emergency where i think almost all of the opposition was jailed in india all of the opposition everybody was jailed so i know and and even today as of now in india we have many draconian laws on our books whether it is on the subject of sedition like article 124 or 295a we have a blasphemy law in india where you cannot hurt religious sentiments uh, uh, this is uh, thanks to the britishers when the britishers enacted this law in the 1920s and even after independence the indians were like who oh, keep this rubbish and and we have it uh, on our books there is disturbance of public order 153a and there are many pathetic laws that exist on the indian statute books there is an, an it law and 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 it just the list is go just non stop when when i was reading this material that that you shared with me to go through i was like damn this is so eerily similar you know and and the motive and the modus operandi is the same every time oh our country cannot handle this these people will run our old system to the ground fear mongering then how do you justify the fear mongering i don't know how else to say this but you find friendly media outlets friendly media outlets that repeat and regurgitate everything that the state apparatus wants you to regurgitate it is literally cut copy paste journalism where they are questioning uh they're supposed to question what the government is doing when it is actually taking their powers away but the complete opposite happens the media completely complies i, I mean the uh, you know there were income tax raids in 1970s against bollywood stars who opposed the emergency of indira gandhi at that time the then prime minister there were people who were heckled for years on because they opposed the emergency now i lay this to you so that you understand i can actually relate to this and many of my indian friends and listeners they can relate to what you're saying but we never thought something as dastardly as this would happen in the west you know the the famous american line freedom and democracy they just go around yapping about freedom and democracy to everyone so we never thought this would happen in the west but how bad was this emergencies act in terms of its impact on individual people So it was relatively short-lived. Um it wasn't um it, it, the the period that it was invoked it wasn't that long. Um we did see violence in the streets in Ottawa and elsewhere there were protests where police um who up to that point had taken a fairly hands-off approach suddenly were instructed or empowered uh, to use more force. um you know it, it 
is still probably relatively mild compared to what we see in other countries. Um, but people reported um, injuries, being pepper sprayed, being kicked, um, you know, hit with guns, that kind of thing. No deaths, uh, thankfully. Um, you know, other impacts, um, people were debanked. Um, and that's an issue that persists where, yes, I, I see your expression. It is quite concerning. Um, people who were not found guilty of any criminal offense or, you know, may not even have had allegations of criminality um, were no longer able to access their bank accounts. Those bank accounts were closed or frozen. Um, th and that, you know, it is an issue that persists where it's very difficult for people um, to function without a working bank account. And so it's a means of cutting someone off without, um, in a sort of insidious kind of way. Um, and there's not a lot of due process, if we put it that way, um, because it, it, uh, your rights of appeal are fairly limited. Um, so that, that's kind of, uh, that's how I would characterize the, it was obviously enough as well to, um, compel tow truck companies, um, to start removing some of the, the large machinery that had stationed itself in Ottawa. Um, so that, that's, you know, it, it, that's how it unfolded the emergencies act here. Yeah. But I mean, how does a libertarian uh, deal with this because I have very strong libertarian leanings on many subjects, although I am more of a lapsed libertarian. Now I understand the value of the state in many ways, but you know, this is what like even a libertarian does not know how to deal with this. Like if this, if a private bank is just going to debank you, like mm -hmm. where do you go then where you, you go the old school way dealing in cash going around. And there are so many things, um, ironically in part due to the pandemic, um, where just in daily life, um, Canada has moved steps towards becoming a more cashless society. Um, so, you know, it can't be understated the impact that not having a bank account has on someone. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's a social impact, but a very real one that it affects their ability to even receive a paycheck. All right. So, so there were accusations uh, when I started digging up on HateGate because, listen, I did not know about this at all. And when I came across your work, I started doing some digging and it's it's my duty to ask this question. Uh, a lot of people who have spoken about HateGate, uh, they have been accused of being white supremacists. So, 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 how much of a white supremacist are you as a brown person? <laughs> I can say that you know, um, <laughs> it's it's such an absurd, and, and that's not to say that someone can be brown or black or whatever um, and not actively or unintentionally uphold systems of white supremacy. Personally, I don't fall into that category um, by my own assessment of my work, the ways that I critique people and institutions, it just doesn't jive. But it's a very convenient label to affix 
in order to get people to disregard the entirety of what's being said. Um, and the reason I think that the label comes about, there, there's a couple of things. Um, first, I mentioned that, you know, the actual substance of Jeremy McKenzie's podcast, um, you know, it's not for everyone's sensibilities. And there are episodes or statements or people who tune in or chime in or who are affiliated either loosely or uh, more closely, um, whose views are arguably racist, right? And, and that is not the same thing. Um, and I think there's a, a lack of appreciation for this. It's not the same thing um, as propagating hate speech. There's actually quite a high threshold in Canadian criminal law um, surrounding the incitement of hatred um, you know, it, it is not just words that are hateful. Um, there are elements to that offense. Um, and it, it also misses the point because the substance of the podcast, Mackenzie's podcast, is not the point of Hategate. The point is that we have a civilian who was targeted by an ostensibly civilian NGO, and then the media, government, law enforcement apparatus took that analysis and made it out to be a militia. And so the question is, is this podcast fan base a militia? And I think we can definitively say, no, it is not. Um, so if we want to assess whether, you know, the substance of the podcast, it, is white supremacist or inappropriate or offensive or hateful or hurtful, that's a separate analysis to undertake. It, it was not within the scope of um, what we produced in this report. Um, and to say that it's white supremacy um, to raise the actual issues that we raised and the patterns that exist, um, I, I think is very short-sighted because it ultimately this is about the state versus civilians and the power that is exercised by the state against civilians. Uh, and it's a lot easier to overlook that when it happens to someone who is wildly unpopular. Uh, you know, there's an element of, well, they had it coming, they deserved it, you know, they said this, so who cares what happens to them? But that's precisely where the erosion of civil liberties and expression and our constitutional rights happens. When we normalize um, these measures that are disproportionate, don't relate to reality on the ground, and, and we justify it because it's for the greater good. It's not for the greater good to undermine the Constitution or our basic civil liberties ever. Yeah, and just to add to this, listen, I'm someone who's vaccinated. I even got a, a single booster shot, which was required by law in India. I mean, I did it. I, I'm someone who thinks the vaccine if, is if uh, you know efficient enough. But at the same time, I'm someone who says if somebody does not want to get the vaccine, you know, I don't care. Don't get it, man. Just and and I think COVID really short circuited some people. 
on either side huh? whether it's the anti vaccination side or 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 the pro vaccination on steroids version side like i'm very pro vaccine most indians you will come across are by and large pro vaccine you like the anti vaxxers in india are not that famous they they just not i find this anti vaccine tirade in america and before people make it sound as if the anti vaccine tirade in america is a right wing phenomenon uh, no ladies and gentlemen go and check out the first anti vaxxers of america they are all highly left wing progressive california folks who and in the most progressive county of california in 2014 15 and and you have the famous cases of jenny bacarty uh, jim carrey and many others jim carrey is a canadian by the way for people who don't know originally jim carrey is a canadian who now lives in america and it's a very unique thing and i used to find it very absurd how how divided the entire issue is in the united states of america and i feel at times in canada too but it doesn't mean that if somebody doesn't want to take a vaccine they are some white supremacists and and secondly even if they are a white supremacist let's assume they are a white supremacist okay i grant you that let them be who cares <laughs> like this is coming from me a brown guy like who yeah. cares yeah th- there is um so much to unpack in that and and i agree largely with what you said um the polarization that exists and is increasingly entrenched in canadian society has a lot to do with the short circuiting or people taking mental shortcuts and kind of our brains are almost seo optimized where you hear the key word and without additional inputs or information you're able to make this assessment about another human being whose views are probably a patchwork of opinions just like all of us um and within the the far left in Canada uh, and i i hesitate to even call it far left this binary is is somewhat false it's maybe more accurate to say the authoritarian left um you know there's this expectation that everyone's opinions are in perfect lockstep at any given moment and if your opinions do not match then you are to be ostracized because you don't meet this sort of purity standard and so th- that self cannibalization on the left uh, means that folks who took opinions that uh you know uh i'm okay with other people not getting vaccinated or i personally don't want to get vaccinated became lumped in with um you know nazis and white supremacists and it 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 is a very unhelpful unproductive way of dealing with different opinions in society um and simultaneously so along with this um expulsion if you don't match our views and you know you're therefore fair game to be targeted um in ways that it, and i i blame online for this a little bit but um there's a dehumanization that occurs where if you are no longer with us then anything is fair game against you um there's simultaneously this this train of thought where we must suppress so it's not enough um to ostracize they they must also be suppressed um and and this 
whether it's framed in terms of deplatforming or you know um, just a a attacking the ability to speak or debate, um, I I find so anti-progressive um, because people are allowed to have wrong opinions, bad opinions. Um, and I'm of the view that the cure for bad speech is better speech, uh, as opposed to trying to shut something down, driving it further underground, making it more appealing in some ways. Um, and the way that this authoritarian left has gone about um, pushing people into the arms of who they say are are the problem source, right? Because it, it uh, if someone is alienated, it's a natural instinct to try and find a new community and new support. Um, and that is what, in my view, pushes some people to extremism. And I've watched it happen in real time um, by attending these rallies. I've seen it in all directions. I've seen people become more involved in the movement, more radical, more extreme. I've seen people step away, drop out. Um, and so, you know, I have at least an anecdotal perspective on how these pipelines work. And just, it's so counterproductive to the stated goals. Uh, and yet there's no tolerance for any disagreement with how it's it's unfolding and and that's what happened to me um you know i'm fairly left of center in in most of my views and i was or they tried to cancel me um for wanting to speak with someone who is the polar opposite and is you know more radical on the side of the right and i wanted to have an interview in the context of a comedy show um, which was my chosen form of political expression. And it was literally blockaded. And I was then blamed for a fight that transpired in the streets because of uninvited thugs who showed up to fight other uninvited thugs. And that, that was all my fault somehow. Um, so it, it uh, I, I digressed a little bit, but you know the, the polarization isn't going to be resolved if we continue to rely on these mental shortcuts because it it uh, there's no real thought or analysis and we stop seeing each other as complex human beings and it, we become these two-dimensional creatures that need to be shut down and, and that's such a dangerous perspective. Yeah, I can relate to what you're saying because I'm someone who has many views that might be called left-wing and I'm a man who's very clearly on the right. I've never hidden that. I don't hear hide that. I mean, for, for context, India does not have a right wing, guys. India, everybody's on the left. Just just for the record, you know, people call BJP right wing. They're not. Uh, they some Sometimes people should read a little. I always say this to my friends in the West. It would do you good if you read policies. The, like BJP, the right-wing party of India, increased the abortion limit. BJP, the right-wing party of India, introduced a bill, the Transgender Protection Bill in 2019. And then they actually gave a definition of what transgender is in detail. So people don't understand each other's politics. And this stems from, you're very right, social media has incentivized uh, human beings to opine a lot more. We're not supposed to have so many opinions. 
we're not honestly we just have too many opinions it's yeah. like everybody's going out there and dropping opinion bombs as if it makes sense nothing makes sense you idiots most of it is gobbledygook so we should not opine a lot but social media unfortunately uh, incentivizes over opinionating and in that process people end up having a lot of mediocre opinions like uh, you know recently i did this uh, I, i i tweeted that if we did uh, an analysis of a lot of these social political commentators which includes me by the way before people think and we did a fact check on how many opinions we gave in the form of analysis and how many ended up being right we would understand how full of shit we all are and and I, and i say this with full responsibility mm-hmm. on my own podcast at least mm-hmm. i'm aware of how full full of shit i am right but uh, and and it breeds the social media breeds this absurd sort of narcissism in people where where the entire world is supposed to fall on their feet and coupled to that we have this phenomenon where localized events are internationalized now now uh, you know there might be something happening in brampton and and in a corner of brampton but people in india will be like there are guns firing everywhere in canada as as the punjabis like to call canada canada and and everywhere it is unsafe in canada and vice versa there might be someone seeing an unfortunate incident with a hindu or a muslim in india and there will be like there are hate factories and we have and you are true we have weaponized hate we think hate gets us clicks and uh, and 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 in this incessant obsession with it we have we have gone from bad to worse and anybody anybody who comes and questions this like a person like me i am a very skeptical person when it comes to grand grandiose claims but i want to talk to you about one specific thing here because again i have many libertarian leanings and i hate the government in many ways when i read the role of the rcmp in this entire scenario that you documented okay that scared the living daylights out of me now tell us about that because that was very scary for an indian so the rcmp um is canada's federal police um and they have jurisdiction across provinces um on federal matters and in some provinces where there's no uh, local police force um the RCMP has detachments and they do sort of the the work there um the RCMP was in my view a driving force um behind this misrepresentation of Diagalon as an extremist group um and i'll give an example of one specific incident that that transpired um our public safety minister went on television and made very sweeping remarks about this weapons cache that was uncovered in Alberta saying that it, it, there are close ties or there's a clear connection with organizers who are in Ottawa um and and the reporters at the time they pressed a little bit to understand you know what organization what connections what are you talking about does that mean there's weapons in Ottawa um and he kept saying well, deferring to the RCMP you know or just ask law enforcement for the for the answers uh, and so we uncover in the freedom of information documents um this chain of emails where RCMP officers are being asked to clarify the minister's statements 
and they don't have anything to go on. And so what they ended up doing was finding a news article that connected this weapons cache because of a homemade patch that matches the Diagolon logo. And they said, well, you know, there's these patches. And so that's like, that's why. And yes, so they bolster his, his statements after the fact by quoting media back to the media and this very circular, you know, it's, it was shocking um, because it's backward and it's not information finding it's kind of uh, plastering it after the fact, like paper mache over a nugget of, of nothing. Um, and, and, you know, throughout these FOI documents as well, you have officers who were apparently tasked with listening to Mackenzie's podcast and, you know, they're taking excerpts of things that sound potentially scary. But if you listen to the episode in context, it's very clear that in surveilling, they aren't actually plugged into this internet culture. Um, and it, it's akin to, um, you know, someone stepping into a Dungeons and Dragons game and not appreciating that this is, you know, a, a separate, like a little subculture and thinking that there's, you know, actual battle plans being made or there's dragons coming or whatever. Um, so just this disconnect that they were either unaware of is the best interpretation because the alternative means they knew, but push forward regardless. And one thing that I will highlight is the RCMP has at best a checkered history uh, in Canada. Um, originally, it was formed, um, you know, as part of the way that uh, we dealt with, we dealt with the government handled Indigenous people. And so um, having sort of a, a reserve system, a pass system, residential schools, the RCMP was... Uh, enforcing all of that. And, and these now we um, can appreciate were gross violations of human rights. Um, you know, the RCMP was involved in a barn burning, um, an arson that they tried framing on activists in the 1970s. And that's how CSIS came to exist. It was an offshoot of the RCMP because RCMP can no longer be trusted exclusively to handle national security issues. Um, and just most recently, um, and this ties into Jeremy McKenzie, um, in Nova Scotia, the province of Nova Scotia, um, there was a, a mass shooter who for two days or so was able to roam around uncaught, undetected. Um, communications between RCMP and the public were misleading, shoddy, the aftermath where, you know, reporting, it, it was, it was a, a botched, a botched operation at best. And Jeremy McKenzie was very vocal about this. And his conclusions that he reached were ultimately, um, many of them were affirmed by the Mass Casualty Commission, um, which independently assessed what happened and said the RCMP screwed up massively in these different ways. And so Jeremy McKenzie, it, it, and, and this tracks with um, sort of when he seems to be on the RCMP radar, it connects to him publishing this viral podcast that humiliates the RCMP. 
And suddenly he is a person of interest without having done anything that really warrants it. Um, and I, I should add actually that Mackenzie um, is facing or was facing um, different sets of charges laid by the RCMP um, across three different provinces in Canada. Um, several of those charges have been withdrawn. Um, and the ones that are pending, um, he intends to fight. So we'll see how it plays out. Um, but th there are irregularities, even in the way that um, he was taken from Nova Scotia, you know, 3,000 kilometers to Saskatchewan for a mischief and assault charge without ever having a proper opportunity to surrender himself or turn himself in. Um, so, you know, when you say that this scares you, it, 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 it is scary because it raises a lot of questions about the use and abuse of power um, and, you know, the law enforcement targeting civilians for reasons that, that are wholly inappropriate and have to do with political expression. Oh my God, this sounds so much like what happened in what happens in India. This this is so eeringly, like I said, the authoritarian impulse. Uh, no wonder Canada is one country I always could relate to. <laughs> and and we we do a fairly good job of masking it a lot of the time. Um, yeah, you... And, you know, it, I should say that the fact that we're able to obtain these freedom of information documents, that itself is is a positive thing because you know, I can imagine circumstances where it's just, we put this through the shredder, no one's ever going to see it, right? So there are, there are hopes for maintaining, you know, democracy or at least pushing toward it, you know, because it's never been perfect and it never will be. Um, but it, the more complacent people are, about what's going on, um, the easier it becomes for for this to be to to be a pattern, right? Yeah, and and, and for people who don't know uh, what you're talking about, the Freedom of Information Act is the 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 Indian version of that is the Right to Information Act (RTI). Guys, Indian people, so what she's talking about is we have, we have something similar like that in RTI. So this is the RTI version of Canada that uh, that Karima is talking about, but uh, you know. When I hear all of this, I just, uh, as an Indian, I can understand every lever that's mm -hmm. being pushed over here, how the state is used to to suppress uh, people who speak. And I'm e not even willing to disagree with the left-wing argument that there might be white supremacists hiding somewhere. My answer is, so what? I mean, why do you have such a such a low opinion of your society why do you have such a low opinion about your own people that that you can't even handle a fringe group in society i mean india we have active separatist movements inside india some of them we have exported to canada too by the way some of them who live in surrey and brampton and i don't see the rcmp and the Canadian government's going hammer and tongs on them, where they call for assassinations of Indian diplomats in Canada in big posters. But uh, I guess, you know, you can go the whole hog when it's a white person involved, I guess. That's all I can say. 
it, it there's a shift, right? Because from 2001 up until let's say 2016, the boogeyman or the scapegoat was Muslims or anyone who was appearing brown, right? So you didn't actually have to be Muslim. It was enough to be <laughs> any any semblance of Middle Eastern or, or olive skin, right? Um, as much as Canada wants to pretend that that wasn't the case, we had politicians calling for um, a hotline to report barbaric cultural practices, for example. Um, but in 2016, and I would say that this lines up with um, the election of Donald Trump um, and then subsequently the events in Charlottesville were another sort of key turning point, um, it shifted and the attention went to white supremacist, far-right extremist. Um, and, and that's not to say that there is no threat posed by this. I think that they're actually quite dangerous ideologies if you get into it. And, and it's insidious the way that um, white supremacy, for example, there are, um, there are hints of it or sense of it um, within the anti-lockdown, anti-mask, anti-vaccine movement. Um, and it, it permeates, right? But it, it in assessing that threat, um, I, I think that there's maybe an overcorrection or an overcompensation. Um, and probably we referred to white guilt. Um, and I think that that plays a part in this as well, where it's almost um, cathartic to point to other really bad white people and I'm going to take it out on them because I'm not like that. And, and people feel in this push to always have opinions to opine on stuff. Um, and yeah, it, it, uh, it, it doesn't contribute much to discourse. Um, and it, it, it's, it's lazy thinking. At the end of the day, it's lazy thinking by people who probably haven't read a lot of books. Yeah, to me, what bothers me in this uh, in, in this entire episode, and I want to repeat it again, is the entire discourse is very narcissistic and very white-centered. I, yeah. I, I find it very nauseating as a brown person who, who lives in Canada too now, uh, at least 40% of, of the time of the year I'm in Canada. So I have earned the right of commenting on Canadian issues because, hey, I also contribute to your economy, Canadians, so you cannot accuse me now. So... Uh, I find it disturbing because white guilt also makes everything about white people. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, I don't give a shit. Listen, you're brown, black, brown, white, whatever color you choose, whatever race, whatever identity. For me, you're all individuals. At the end of the day, I mean, uh, a piece of shit could be a piece of shit as a brown man or a woman or a white man or a woman. My point is, we have pieces of shit everywhere. That's all I'm trying to say. It's not like just because I'm a brown man living in India, we don't have bad people there. We have enough bad people over there too. But the way the discourse and and the center of the hate industrial complex that you talk about is narcissism. That's the centrifugal force. To me, as an outsider, when I listened to you, when I read your documents, and then I tried to do the counter, uh, you know, I, I tried to read the counter to your documents. And everything that tied in this entire episode was narcissism of 
on the one side racists who are mm-hmm. actual white racists and mm-hmm. on the other side actual white anti-racists the narcissism of both these people and everybody around them is like i did not sign up for this guys so, so yeah, that's no, what I it's right. uh, I, i'm very skeptical of particularly white people but anyone who makes race their dominant worldview because it's identity politics representational politics that's not going to save us it's not that that's not that's not the solution to this and it, it is it is actually an offensive way to think now Again, that's not to say that there aren't systemic issues. And um, I can speak on the criminal justice system, for example, um, and the way that certain groups are overrepresented because there is over-policing, because of the discretion police apply, it, it, there's less indulgences that are granted, right? There, like We can point to this as a real problem that exists in Canada, um, but, you know, the... Most recently, we had the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which is now a government holiday. And the effect of that government holiday um, means that Indigenous people who are in remand or who had court dates, it's now pushed over, right? So like the actual, like this, everyone else gets a holiday, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what are we doing to address the core issues? And there's an unwillingness to roll up the sleeves and do that dirty work, look at, you know, actually engage with it, um, because it's much nicer to wave a flag or to, you know, say a few words at the start of your public speech to recognize that you're on unseated terror. Like, and, and that's not to say performative things have no value. I think symbolism matters. Um, but symbolism isn't substance. And if we replace substance with just this performative stuff, um, you, you get to pat yourself on the back um, while you're still standing on someone's neck. Yeah. I, I, can I back you up on this? Nothing gets me when I hear a bunch of white people. This per, this company and this land was bought by, uh, from this, this, this tribe. We just want to acknowledge this. I was like, are you giving it back to them? If you're not, <laughs> That's right. That's right. shut the hell up. You know, this is their way of saying, listen, we told you we did something bad. Now shut up and let us do our work. This is this is what they're doing. They're just saying it in a nice way. And for my Indian folks, again, Canadian politics is very performative, guys. So try and understand. As someone, again, I have an outsider perspective, but I observe Canadian politics with a lot of interest. There is a veneer of performative, uh, you know, acts on the Canadian politics and the current prime minister of Canada. I don't care if you vote for them, people, Canadians, he is the performative in charge. You know, he is the epitome of performative politics. Like the, he, the tweets he writes, the, the amount of alphabets in his tweets, like, uh, uh, you know, what is your contribution to the world? And he will just say some absurd word salad that means nothing. And this is the essence of Canadian politics being performative, being, being, you know, like we are not a military superpower. We outsource our fighting capabilities to America. I'm sorry, Canadians. This is a fact. You may not like it. This is a fact. You did that deal with America. I did not. 
so go go fight with your politicians we don't have any hard power so what are we going to do well our soft power is we're nice and performative it is performative it is it is uh, it is very annoying for a person who sits outside and sees but enough of the serious stuff i see wwe behind you now let's talk about wwe but before that i want to ask this question because a live viewer has asked this question i think it's a good question before we jump into wwe now somebody has asked on a scale of 1 to 10 how corrupt and abusive is the uh, is the rcmp and canadian police now what is the executive and legislative oversight over them and are there any reforms in the pipeline in the form of proposals um i think like most policing systems there's endless calls for reform there's endless reports and commissions pointing to issues that you know ultimately get shelved or maybe there are some changes made but the core remains the same um we do have the the, the notion of a separation of powers um so the oversight over RCMP um strictly speaking the government is not supposed to um give direction right the rcmp is is meant to be an independent um entity and, and not take direction from politicians um practically speaking that's you know a, a little bit of a separate matter um but often behind closed doors um on a scale of 1 to 10 it's hard because the scales are all relative right no one is being as far as i'm aware um taken off the street in an unmarked van and shot in the back of the head that's not happening in canada um but you know there is absolutely corruption and our own commissions and over like, like overseeing bodies are are pointing to that Um so I I don't know that I can pin us on us because I don't know what the 10 you know <laughs> what the 10 represents. Oh, the um, Indian 10 is all dangerous so I don't think so the Canadians will be at that level I can assure yeah, you. Yeah no so it's not it's not like it's all relative but it's not good if if we put it that way. Yep that so I understand. Now now I I saw your pictures with Edge while I was doing my research. Now what's with you and WWE when did you get into WWE? You know, I've been a fan of professional wrestling um probably since before I could walk. Um Wow. It was it was the the Saturday night uh viewing in our household. Um so my dad liked it, my mom liked it, and I just kind of grew up watching it. Um and I've always appreciated the the spectacle, the drama, um you know, the the performances, yes, but I, I also it's become almost a frame of reference to understand politics um the the idea of behind the scenes actually they're friendly right and they have to get along and there's this civility but sometimes not um but you know there's a show that they have to put on in the house of commons and that's what we get to watch where they're all kind of uh, raucous and you know acting and performing um and you know it it i i'm a i'm a fan not just of WWE i now watch AEW as well and it's it's a broader kind of I'll, i'll go to an indie show and just enjoy the without knowing anything about the storylines or the performers um I, i it's a fun subculture um and one that you know it is 
quite often mocked. I, I get a lot of flack for being a wrestling fan. Um, but I think it's people who don't appreciate the art that goes into it. It is performance, you know, and there's athleticism. And uh, I, I, I just, I'm a fan. What can I say? Now, so here's the thing. Obviously, I grew up watching a lot of Hulk Hogan. I, I, I still have a VHS tape of WrestleMania 1 in my house. <laughs> I still do. I, I have a VHS tape of WrestleMania 4 too. Uh, and uh, SummerSlam. I, I have the, the one of my vivid memories is the Ultimate Warrior versus Hulk Hogan match. That that I, I remember uh, till this day. I was a huge Ultimate Warrior fan. Till this day, I don't understand a word he said. I don't understand what he used to say. Like, I would not get it. What the hell was he saying? I would not understand. But it, it sounded nice. That's all I can say. That's all I can say. Yeah, yeah it, it was fun. But then, you know, the Attitude Era came. I loved the Attitude Era. That was the best. But then they made it for kids. Like PG-7. And honestly, like, eh, I don't like it now. I just can't watch it. There's been a movement away from the PG era. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of transitions and it, of course, um, there's nostalgia when you think about what you used to watch, it's wrapped into everything else, right. About childhood. So it'll never be as good as we remember it being, although objectively at that time, people were complaining that it wasn't as good as it used to be, um, which is probably a universal phenomenon. Um, but now with some of the performances and, and with wrestlers being of the age where they grew up in the Attitude Era, you see hints of that returning. So, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I don't tune in on a weekly basis. I sort of keep up here and there. Um, Twitter has made it a lot easier to get the highlights and the snapshots, but for me, there's nothing better than a live wrestling show, whatever the production. Love it. So so you're more someone who I would categorize as who enjoys the spectacle live, not more on the television. And I think that 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 a lot of people like I have obviously, you know, I used to love WWE and then I just moved on to Ultimate Fight, Fighting Championship and I, I'm more into mixed martial arts now. I, I enjoy and it's just by pure coincidence that my favorite mixed martial artist is in my view, the greatest Canadian sportsman ever. I rate him higher than Wayne Gretzky. It's uh, George Saint-Pierre. Uh, uh, in my opinion, uh, Canadians will never agree with me. And I understand that. But I, I think GSP is just... He epitomizes everything that is nice about Canada. He just keeps smiling all the time and yet he can crack a punch. And and I just I just loved that thing about GSP. He was, he was just amazing. But so what do you make of wrestling today because uh uh now with the new deal vince has pretty much sold the company and he, he's left wwe and now you have ufc and wwe very interestingly under the same banner i think it's endeavor that owns both ufc and wwe or has a huge chunk of both of both of that so what, what do you think of this like do you think ufc is going to affect wwe and vice versa and is going to make both the products better We've seen like limited crossover in the past. So it's not a totally alien notion that wrestlers also compete in UFC or vice versa. Um, I think that, yes, that my hope, I suppose, is that it does, it, they're very different products and they appeal to 
different fan bases, although there's some overlap. Um, I hope that it's not a streamlining that we end up seeing where everything looks kind of similar. Um, I hope that they manage to keep it two distinct products. Um, but the way things are going in the wrestling industry more broadly, um, there's more competition today than there was, you know, a decade or so ago. Um, and if you remember like the Monday Night Wars between WCW and WWF at the time, um, we're all like we're back where there's competing production companies um, that are, are also offering great product, giving wrestlers more leverage to negotiate for better contracts and, you know, more creative control. Uh, and, and I think that that's a positive overall for the fans. Um, so I, I'm actually quite hopeful. Um, you know, I, I don't like to see any kind of oligop oligopoly or monopoly, which is what happened for quite some time, um, you know, with the shutdown of WCW and uh, ECW. And, and now that there's more options, I, 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 I like that in, in a free market. Do you, so do you have strong opinions as a Canadian about the Montreal screw job till date? <laughs> you know, what a shame. What a shame. Um, I, I, I appreciate Brett's, uh, sorry, Vince McMahon's perspective that Brett screwed Brett um, in that, you know, he should have conceded that he was going to have to lose since he was leaving the company. That only makes sense. Um, but, you know, the level of disrespect, it's, it, I'm a Bret Hart fan, so I, I ultimately, at the end of the, and I was there actually. Elimination Chamber was in wow. Montreal this year, um, not not for the screw job. I was there this year where uh, Montreal native um, Sami Zayn was facing off against Roman Reigns for the title, and he had so much momentum. And I was maybe silly to be optimistic that we would right the previous wrong. <laughs> He ended up losing, but um, you know that that's that's part of the the drama, right? You have these moments, and and that's what WWE does. It creates moments, um, and and I I enjoy that. It's it's a it's markers in your life, you know. So so who do you think uh, is the greatest Canadian uh, professional pro wrestler? Objectively speaking. Um, you know, Bret Hart is unmatched, but my personal favorite is Chris Jericho. I think that he is the master of reinventing himself, of staying relevant, um, of, you know, putting his fingers in different pots and succeeding along the way, whether it's with podcasting or writing or his music. Um, and, and he's funny. You know, I, I have to separate him as a performer from him as a person. Um, I think that's the case for most wrestlers, actually. They're a problematic bunch of people. Um, but Chris Jericho, to me, is, is you know, my number one guy. So is Edge back? I mean, I don't understand. Like, is he back or not back? Because he, he takes such long breaks. So he, he was out for a long time. And um, we didn't think that he would be coming back because of um, this very serious injury. But... You know, he spent a decade or so doing the rehabilitation, obviously doing other stuff as well. He was acting, um, but he came back to the WWE, um, I want to say in 2020, 
um, maybe 2019, he returned and then wrestling, he started wrestling again in 2020. Um, and his contract there is finished. I was actually there for the last match in Toronto. I was bawling. Um, and there's a very unflattering video of me doing that. Um, but, and now he has joined that um, AEW, so like the competing company to WWE, um, much smaller in scale, but is still a viable competitor in some respects. Um, and, and he is now facing off against Christian Cage. So his former um, tag team partner, Christian, has been having an amazing heel run in AEW. Um, so we, we get to have this foil good guy, bad guy with Edge and Christian. Um, and just the photo that you would have seen in your thorough research, I commend you for that. Um, it was a show in Ottawa. Um, and we spent time in the gas station right next to the arena afterwards, just waiting for Uber prices to go down, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, and it took a while, but Lo and behold, Edge walks in with Beth Phoenix and they're like shopping for Doritos or whatever, like their snacks to drive to their next venue. Uh, and they were gracious enough to stand for a picture with me. So that was, uh, it's it's nerdy, but I, I have fun with it. No, no, I understand. I even actually looked up your satire. I, I was checking. So you're doing great work and I, I have to commend you. Um, uh, I understand uh, you also are uh, quote-unquote uh, infamous for uh, having a lot of uh, ordeal with the law, in, uh, law, law enforcement agencies also. So I was thorough in my research and, and I have today, you're pushing the right buttons there, uh, Karima. So uh, before we wrap today's podcast up, anything else you want to talk about or mention, I'll give it give it over to you now. Well, just um, kind of an offshoot of HateGate is that the organization that's at the nexus of the misleading information spread by law enforcement and uh, government officials and media, um, they're currently actively seeking $5 million from the federal government to become an anti-hate watchdog. And their track record is very troubling um, because it's a focus on civilians um, and to some degree, politicians, um, but it's largely on relatively insignificant people. Um, and, and I think that this is real cause for concern, because if we have an agency that's effectively acting as a proxy for the ruling party to smear opponents, potential opponents, kind of cut people off at the knees, um, you know, that that's, it's not healthy for a democracy. Um, and, and the ways that we think about combating hate uh, have to change because I'll say it again, the cure for bad speech is better speech. And I recognize that in a digital world, we face unique challenges, what with algorithms and you know, the clickbait incentive, you make money by being outrageous, by being less nuanced. So there are all these forces that drive us away from a measured, um, sensible take on things. Uh, but it, it's now that we have to resist because happening in parallel, we have the Canadian government 
uh, looking to regulate the internet and you know the content that goes on the internet rather than perhaps thinking about anonymity online and how anonymity is a driver of misinformation, disinformation, harm. Um, so, so these are still very active issues and there are ways for people to get involved and, you know, participate by having sort of your voice heard. I and mean, it's, it's a limited, you know, your vote is one thing, emailing an MP, right? Like how useful is it? I say that in order to prevent, you know, to be able to say that you've done kind of what you can, um, like we're at a critical juncture. Um, so I would just encourage people to continue looking up these issues, um, you know, Bill C-11, Bill C-18, um, just to understand the landscape um, because it it, uh, it matters. And, and the more, you know, political winds shift and it's very short-sighted for those who are currently in power to say, well, you know, this is what we need to do because we only want good things on, on the internet. Um, once that pendulum swings um, and you have a different ruling party in power, you, you bet that the people who pushed for these regulations are not going to be happy about it. Um, and, and democracy, as imperfect as it is, ultimately is compromise, right? And being able to coexist even when we dislike each other, even when we detest each other, but we we work within a framework that everyone gets certain rights, and you know we compromise that at our own peril. Um, so that that's my preachy-ish kind of closing there. That that the the issues are active and ongoing, and um, they affect all of us, whether or like I I never imagined that I'd be in this position of. Uh, being targeted by that kind of organization, but it, it, it's happening. Um, so, you know, it, it, no one is, is safe in that sense. So just stay vigilant is my, is my closing remark. No, I'm really grateful to you to come on the podcast and explain this issue because, like I said, there is a significant listener base of this podcast that is, obviously, they most of them must be Indian origin folks. I'm not going to deny that, but they are Canadian passport holders. They 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 vote in Canada. They have a existence in Canada. And one of my criticisms of the Indian community, which they don't like to hear, has been their frog in the well mentality. You know, they watch more Indian news than Canadian news. And I find it very irritating. Like when I ask them questions about Canadian politics and they're like, why is he asking questions? And they don't have answers at times. And I always tell them, you know, you're here, be more uh, in, in tune. And, and, and I'm glad you came over on the podcast. So to all my Canadian listeners, this affects you the most. Pay attention. This is not good. You know? So stop watching uh, Republic and Times Now for a change and start listening uh, to what's happening uh, in Canada too. This is not good. Authoritarianism sucks of any kind, whether it's left-wing authoritarianism or right-wing authoritarianism. You should be principally opposed to authoritarianism. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It can come from religion. Nobody needs to co convince Kushal Mehra on, on uh, criticism of religion. Uh, I am the known critic of religion uh, going around, but government can screw you as much as religious institutions can. So you have to be skeptical of everything, guys. But once again, Karima, thank you very much for coming and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.
all right guys we'll wrap it up so to the ones listening to the audio version or the ones who are watching this or going to watch this later on youtube uh in the description of the podcast you'll have karima's twitter handle or her website go check her workout the satire is amazing i would really uh, you know urge all of you to go check her her cartoons out uh, it was really interesting i really loved that and and as you guys know i get offered ad reads for these podcasts i don't do them out of principle because the moment you start doing ads they control what you can say how you think whom do you talk to then they tell you oh krishal you cannot criticize religion because you know india is a very religiously sensitive society which is why i don't do ad reads and i reject a lot of money so how do i sustain myself i sustain myself through a membership program so please if you can support this podcast of this crazy person who has heterodox views please go and become a member whether on youtube or on patreon or for indians on fanmo that's the only way i sustain this podcast and i've been able to till now so i hope more and more people join that if you cannot do that just leave a rating if you're an audio listener or on on youtube i'll see you guys next time until then take care namaste bye